This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. You're listening to Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Welcome back to Dollars and Change here on Sirius XM's Business Radio Channel 132. I'm Sandy Hunt. And I'm Nick Ashburn. In this segment, we're going to be talking to Danielle Solomon, who's the Vice President of Race and Ethnicity Policy at American Progress. Danielle, welcome to Dollars and Change. Hi, thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you. Um, So let's jump right into our conversation. We're going to be talking a lot about H.R. 40. For our listeners who aren't familiar, can you explain it to us? Yeah. H.R. Uh, 40 is a bill that would create a commission to look at uh, the legacy of slavery and its impacts on present day for African Americans. Uh, it was it has been introduced every year since 1989. It was originally introduced by former Congressman John Conyers, um, and it is it has now been introduced in this Congress by uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee out of Texas, and Senator Cory Booker actually recently just introduced a Senate companion bill as well. And so tell us a little bit about your work at American Progress, which sort of I think also helps set the stage as to why we're talking about HR 40 with you. Great. Um, So at the Center for American Progress, I run our race and ethnicity policy team. My team focuses on looking and examining um, American economic, social, and civic systems to figure out ways to make them work better for people of color. What we know if you look at data and research um, is that there are vast disparities for people of color versus their white counterparts. And the reason there are disparities are not um, based off of individual choices, but instead based off of how systems operate. Um, Our American systems were created in a way um, to ensure better benefits or better outcomes, should I say, uh, for white Americans instead of uh, Americans of color. And so we work every day to put forward public policies that actually address uh, not only those disparities, but that institutional racism. So we have better outputs um, for the growing majority of Americans who happen to be people of color. And so talk about, you know, the impact of H.R. 40. Part of the objective is really a deeper understanding and, as I, as I understand it, a quantification um, of these lingering effects of systemic inequality. Tell us what you would hope to, not hope to find, but what, what dimensions you hope to be illuminated in this work and why that would be important or how that would impact the work at, at uh, American Progress. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think um, part of the great thing about this bill is that it allows the American people to have a better understanding of American history. Um, The bill uh, requires the commission, which I think, uh, if my memory serves me correct, is about 13 or 14 members of the commission, to actually examine through historical documentation, government records, the impact of slavery. And we know that the American public has oftentimes not gotten the full story of Mm -hmm. how America was founded, and this would provide an opportunity for us to actually learn the true story around uh, American history and our founding. That, that's one. So it's not just about uh, the um, quantitative or how much money we're talking about, but it's also about really atoning for that sin um, and to really correct the wrong of that sin um, in present day instead of what, when it really should have happened, which was um, during Reconstruction. And so it provides us with another opportunity, an opportunity that was missed during Reconstruction um, today. And so it's not just about figuring out how much money is owed and if money is owed and who would get it and all of those questions that consistently get raised, but it's also about um, 
atoning, really having that national apology for what was done. Um, it's also about teaching Americans, not only white, but also black Americans about how we got here um, and how our American economic system was built on the backs of slave labor, uh, rape, torture, and terror. Um, and the outcomes we see today. Um, I would also say it provides an opportunity to show people a through line um, between slavery and present day, right? So when you're looking at the disparities in mm -hmm. maternal and infant mortality, when you're looking at the racial wealth gap, those are all um, fruits that were born out of the tree of slavery, for lack of a better um, term. You know, slavery bore a lot of fruit, and one of those, some mm -hmm. of those fruits. Right, uh, we're seeing show up. those impacts today. And when we talk Correct. about impact, I mean, these are significant numbers. Um, you know, when we talk about the maternal and infant mortality disparities, I think it's four times in the latest I read yep. um, between, you know, uh, and I actually don't know whether the data is between white Americans and African Americans or if it was African Americans and other uh, you know, U.S. It's, race populations. Uh, black women um, are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than their white counterparts. And that cuts across and it stays the same despite when you can when you look at protective factors. So mm -hmm. things like education, income, income education. levels, yep. it still holds true. Yeah, I remember the Times did a, a really beautiful piece on that last year that was, you know, powerful and illuminating to me. And Danielle, I wanted to help our listeners understand, I mean, let's give a little bit of a history lesson, but also really understand what we mean when we talk about systemic racism. It's a concept that I think I kind of get at conceptually, but it's hard for me to even really sort of tell someone, like, here's what I think the definition is. But when you think of slavery as a point in time, you potentially think about Jim Crow laws mm -hmm. as a point in time. What are, you know, can you give us some examples that might help our listeners wrap their heads around, you know, what is systemic racism and how that really ends up bearing out the fruit that we're talking about? Yeah. Um, so I would say think about systems differently than you think about people. So a lot of times you hear about uh, poor choices people make or individual choices. Like if you don't go to school, if you don't have a job, um, you you are likely to have these types of results. Systematic inequality or systematic racism really is about even when you do all the right things or even when you do uh, or, or even when you are making the uh, quote unquote correct choices, you go to school, you buy a home, all the protective factors we talk about, you still have worse income out, outcomes. And so you see that uh, when we're talking about, for example, we just talked about maternal and infant mortality. Mm -hmm. Even when you have black women who are highly educated, high paying, have a home and are married, they still are more likely um, to die in childbirth, right? You see that in uh, the examples of Serena Williams and Beyonce. These are um, phenomenal women who have had experiences that um, are much more likely just because they are African American. When you look at the racial wealth gap, for example, even when you can control for college education and home ownership, two things that really should provide you with wealth in this country. Most Americans get wealth in, um, from inheritance or home ownership. Um, you still do not actually see real wealth being built in the black community. So I'll give you a number, for example. Today, um, the racial wealth gap between black families and white families and in the median, right, not the average, but the median at the middle point is about 10 to 1. So for every dollar that a black family has in wealth, a white family has $10. And that's controlling for um, education, home ownership, and income. We also recently, last year, produced a, a paper called Systematic Inequality that specifically looked at the black-white wealth gap. And our data found that um, 
college-educated black households actually have less wealth than non-college-educated white households. So again, that's not about individual choices. That's about how a system is um, creating poor outcomes for you just based off of who you are. So those are some um, examples of how systems are actually perpetuating um, inequality in America. And one of the objectives of H.R. 40, as I understand it, is hearing about sort of targeted interventions to address these issues. Tell us what you expect, you know, what would be expected or hoped to come out of that in terms of, um, you know, maybe a particular example. So maternal health, are you looking for, you know, interventions that would be um, different, you know, uh, programs for folks throughout lifetimes? Would it be thinking about um, health care, you know, coverage in a different way? What are you hoping comes out of it in terms of that, you know, action, that intervention dimension? Yeah, I mean, I think part of what HR 40 and I know we at CAP and the race team are looking for is for the government um, to really center people of color when they are looking to put forward policy interventions. So that's not only around the racial wealth gap, but maternal and infant mortality, uh, infrastructure policy, um, wages and wealth, just any type of policy we're putting forward, we're trying to put people of color in the center of that conversation because government can be powerful, right? Mm -hmm. Like we know government can create, for example, the middle class, which is exactly what the government did when they um, produced the GI Bill. They provided a pathway for veterans coming back home to not only put themselves through school, but also purchase a home. Unfortunately, you know, the government also blocked African-Americans from having that full access to that type of to those loans. Um, so government can do things. We also know, for example, the government, you know, um, backed redlining. Um, and then we know the private sector used that government policy to make money again off the backs of African Americans and build wealth in white communities, but not in black communities. And so government actually is quite powerful and can do things. And so what we're asking government uh, to do now is to be just as targeted as they were in the past, but be targeted to equalize the field, meaning put the people of color that you had blocked um, or rejected rejected or purposely, um, you know, steered or placed into certain neighborhoods uh, at the forefront of policy interventions to build wealth um, for those communities. Um, and when we think about a sort of future state, you know, a forward-looking view of policy, can you help us better understand some of the demographic trends in this country? And I mean, besides sort of just a moral imperative, why it's also just a really important issue for our country to be putting people of color at the center of policy. Like the majority minority dimensions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so um, the census, I want to say maybe 10 years ago, said that our country um, was browning, um, you know, quicker than I think folks expected. And so um, I think 10 years ago, the census uh, said by 2050, there would be no clear majority. Um, since then, it seems like if you look at the numbers, we are browning a little bit quicker. I think the recent uh, numbers look, say about 2043, it will be um, majority and minority country. Um, but I think what's important to take from that is, you know, it's important to ensure that the majority of Americans, no matter what color they are, are doing well, right? And if mm -hmm. they aren't, that's not only a detriment to the growing majority of Americans, but it's also a detriment to who will, you know, to mm -hmm. white Americans. Um, those are the folks that um, get our businesses running, you know, uh, do, not only do our academic institutions, but just uh, driving the trains, doing um, great new technologies. This is the new America, and we need to make sure that they are fully equipped um, 
to be successful. And if we don't, it's not only a detriment to them as a people, but it's a detriment uh, to our country. And so the idea that uh, we would not center uh, this group of individuals, not only for addressing the historical wrong, but also looking prospectively um, is a disservice to the country as a whole. Do you have any sense, maybe more from a sociological perspective, I'm not sure, um, from your work or any academic research you've seen, as to why we often think about race issues as a zero-sum game, I think potentially, you know, specifically from, like, if if people of color win, I lose as a white man or something like that. Like, do you, any sense as to why we feel that way? Um, I mean, I would argue that we've been taught to think that way um, from our inception, right? Like, if I get something, if I, if I am white, um, if I give a little bit, then that means I'm losing something. That is the basis, I think, for how our country was able to enslave uh, black people for so long. I think that is the basis um, for how we're able to rip children from their parents at the border right now because we are otherizing people and we are also um, using that power to otherize um, as a basis for, well, if they get something, these other people that aren't like me, then that means I'm losing something. And this is these are all tactics that have been used um, to control power um, for an elite few, right? And we're seeing a, a growing amount of, um, you know, wealth concentration and power concentration um, in this moment, which is why I think you're seeing more people um, willing to talk about how we have been using racism, um, you know, our one of our original sins, um, to drive that wedge. It has always been a wedge issue. I think um, it, it's purposely a wedge issue because it allows people to... Um, otherize a group of people and take from them yep. and hoard power. How do we not otherize? What would your advice be sort of as, you know, to listeners of the show as individuals or, you know, in the roles they play in their communities, families or places of work? You know, what's the, you know, what's the response to that? If you are seeing it done or doing it yourself, is it focusing on the individual uh, rather than a group or is it, you know, help help us Help us navigate that and help folks to identify maybe where they're doing it and how they can do do better. Yeah, um, I would say two things. One, I would say um, do your own research and learn. Uh, you know, in our public system, our public school systems are great. Our public school systems are great, but they fail to tell the entire story about American history. And there's a lot of learning that we as a people, as American people, need to do about uh, what we've done to each other in this country. So one, I would say we need to do our own learning and not just trust in the textbooks or TV. And, um, and where would you where would you point folks to for you know, a, a better source or a more um, complete source of that picture? Uh, there are a number of resources. Um, you know, for example, Sandy Darity out of Duke University has done a great amount of work around uh, reparations and the wealth gap. Derek Hamilton is another econo uh, economist out of Ohio State who's doing great work. There's lots of academics who have written, um, you know, historical writings, I would say, um, Brian Stevenson has created this beautiful memorial in Alabama about the history of lynching. There's a lot of um, good uh, quality research and learning out there. I just think it, it's it's harder for people to see because it's not as um, available. But doing mm -hmm. the work is really important. Okay, I don't um, want to take you off your list. That was oh, point no, no, no. point one was no, do your research. Um, so that would be one. And then two, I think uh, people need to uh, put themselves in the situation in which they see. And so um, when I think about the children 
children who are being ripped from their parents at the border. Um, I am a mother of two small children. Um, it is very hard for me to understand how we as a country um, could allow that to happen, right? Um, and so not turning off the TV, but actually looking at it and seeing what is happening. When I see a young boy in Ohio playing um, with a toy gun, but is shot by an officer um, who didn't even bother to get out of the car or um, fully assess the situation before shooting and killing him, you know, it's up to us as an American people to look at that situation and say, if that were my son, if that were me, mm-hmm. um, how would I feel about that? And not just say, well, I'm white or I'm black, so that's not me. That is you. Um, and we need to do a better job of not only having empathy, but understanding what people deal with, especially black people and people of color every single day, just walking through life um, in order to better understand what our responses should be. And I'm not saying that's easy to do, but making that um, targeted and intentional effort to do so is really important um, in moving our country forward. So I, w- I want to take this conversation in so many different directions, but uh, because we're limited on time, I'll bring it back to HR 40 a little bit. And I wanted to maybe help our listeners better understand, you know, why, why just in terms of like researching this, which is what the bill is talking about. Mm-hmm. I think people have jumped immediately to reparation. It's a vote on reparations. It's not an action. It's a research bill, not an actions bill. So, Correct. you know, why, why is there such pushback against it? Um, because I think uh, it requires us to atone. It, it requires us to actually uh, tell the truth. Um, it, uh, it requires us to look in the mirror and really uh, understand what we, we have done as a country and how, uh, and how this country was founded. And, I mean, it's an ugly history. Um, I, I, you know, people don't like to uh, look at ugly things or things that uh, make you uncomfortable, but it's really important to do that. Again, just going back to Brian Stevenson's lynching museum, um, I have yet to actually go myself, but what I have been told and what I have seen in pictures and video is that it, it, it forces you to understand what it must have felt like or how many people we lynched in the South um, you know, during Jim Crow. And that forces you to feel what people um, allowed to happen Right. Um, And that makes people really uncomfortable because um, it's ugly. Um, But we have to have that ugly conversation. We have to put ourselves in the middle of that ugly history so we can get to the other side. And Danielle, Um, is that so on this show, we often talk about, um, you know, the role of government, the role of the private sector, the role of civil society and sort of, you know, we're business radio. And so we we certainly have touched on a lot of economic issues here for um, people of color and, and the disparities. From what you're just saying, is that why this is a federal policy issue? Because, you know, it is a a national issue versus sort of an individualized or even state issue? Yeah, it is. It's it's definitely a federal issue. This is the actions that we have seen, um, you know, from slavery and post-slavery are are government actions, right? I I spend a lot of my time talking about the fact that we it's not just about what it's not about white people, right? It's not about it's not individual behavior. It's about a system. It's about government action and inaction. Um, And it it requires the government to take ownership for the part that they played um, in in not only slavery, but the outcomes post-slavery. Um, it's really important for the government to take responsibility for the role they played. Yeah. 
And so as we come into our last couple minutes here, um, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about what else is going on in American progress besides, you know, the the sort of enthusiasm for and strategic thinking around H.R. 40. Um, so what are you looking forward to, Danielle, sort of as, as upcoming, um, you know, efforts or priorities for the race and ethnicity policy group? Yeah, what I'm most excited about is that people are actually talking honestly about race and racism in America. Uh, The fact that we have a number of Democratic uh, nominees running for president who are actually talking about um, systematic inequality and um, structural racism and using those terms, even saying racism, um, is progress, in my opinion, where we're actually engaging in this conversation and putting forward policy that centers black people and Latino people um, and really trying to address the needs that they have um, is progress. And so um, I'm hopeful that we will have a, a Democratic nominee um, who will put forward public policy that actually um, addresses inequality and racism, um, all positive steps in how we address racism in America. Anything you want to encourage listeners to keep a close eye on as we come into, I don't want to say an election year, but election years, we're already sort of in, uh, you know, we're coming into debate season. Um, you know, what should folks keep their eye on and, uh, you know, be, be watching for and listening to in particular? Uh, Folks should keep their eye on how the candidates are really talking about not only jobs and wages, but wealth building. Wealth is the best economic indicator of Mm -hmm. how an individual or a family is doing. And so ensuring that candidates are actually including wealth in that conversation would be something um, that I'd encourage your listeners to uh, listen for and encourage and the candidates running. Yeah. And I I will just also take the chance to underscore what you said about not you know, not being, you know, not being afraid to look at the hard stuff, um, whether it's race, whether it's the crisis at the border. You know, if if you vote, which you should as an American undoubtedly do, you do have a right to, to look at this hard stuff and you have a responsibility to look some of this stuff in the eye wherever you land on the issues in an election cycle. The news can be a lot. It can be very overwhelming. It can be, you know, uh, you know, very upsetting. But um, we need to be informed Sussing through the BS. Yeah, we need to be exactly. So you know, find sources and take time um, to be good and informed voters because that is, you know, that's how these conversations evolve and how these policies change is by, um, you know, who who we give that power to. We have to wrap up now, though. We can certainly have this conversation all day because there's a lot to discuss. Danielle, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. To our listeners, thank you for joining us for this important series of conversations here on Dollars and Change. We'll be with you again next week, as we always have the pleasure of. uh, You're listening to Dollars Change here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Sandy Hunt here with... And I'm Nick Ashburn. And we are very grateful to everyone who helped make this show possible, our guests, our producer and engineer, and to all of you listeners. Thanks for being with us. We'll talk to you again soon. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.